There are nearly 300,000 University of Alberta alumni around the world. They are your neighbors, your community members, your colleagues. You'll find them in all manner of work, in all kinds of places. And when disaster strikes, you'll find them on the front lines. These are their stories. This is The Line. A cellular tower set ablaze. In one week, police responded to seven similar fires, all targeting cell towers. They've since arrested a couple in their 20s and are investigating whether they might have been motivated by a conspiracy theory linking 5G technology to COVID-19. Way, way back in the 1990s, when I was young and the internet was in its infancy, I thought we were headed towards an era of truth. I thought that having information at our fingertips through the World Wide Web would make it impossible for propaganda or conspiracy theories to take hold. I was very wrong. We live in a golden age of misinformation because of the internet. Social media has made it easy to share conspiracy theories dressed up as news. There's literally a button for it. And COVID has only made things worse. The uncertainty surrounding the virus has become fertile ground for conspiracy theories. And that's a big problem. The World Health Organization even has a term for it, infodemic. To better understand its impact, we reached out to Tim Caulfield, U of A's misinformation expert. He agrees things are pretty crazy right now. I've been studying misinformation for decades. I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen anything like this. This is absolutely incredible. And, and it's everywhere, right? You have like the, the really crazy stuff like the 5G, uh, the, the bioweapon, you know, drinking urine, um, the idea that bleach, you know, all that really crazy stuff. But then you also have all that stuff around that sounds more plausible, like immune boosting and, and vitamins. Uh, and then you have the stuff that's even more complex. That is it misinformation or is it mistranslation or is it just science hype, like the hydroxychloroquine and, and you know, all of that stuff, right? So uh, what's interesting is you have this huge variety you know, this, uh, of, of different kinds of misinformation. But all of it is having an adverse impact. All of it, all of it is. So it's become a, a really complex topic to try to tackle. Tim Caulfield is an alumnus, a professor in the Faculty of Law, and research director of the Health Law Institute. You may know him from one of his books about debunking health fads, or from his Netflix show titled A User's Guide to Cheating Death. He says he's been interested in studying health and science policy since the start of his career, but over time he's noticed how pop culture and celebrity culture have become more influential. I got in you know, right, right from from my very first academic position till now. A big theme in my in my career has been looking at, at what the evidence says uh, about health policies, about science policy. So I was always kind of aggregating the evidence. Um, you know, whether you're talking about obesity policy or nutrition policy or stem cells or genetics. And I increasingly noticed, uh, it, it may seem obvious now, but, you know, the degree to which pop culture and scientific representations actually have an impact. And they have an impact not just on public perceptions, but on, on what the scientists do and how the scientists represent their work and, and funding policy. So I just became fascinated with that. And that increasingly our, our research went in that in that direction. So now we do more and more empirical work on that. We have an interdisciplinary research team that's amazing. I feel very lucky. Um, and, and then, you know, I'm just personally also interested in pop culture and the role of pop culture and the way we think about these things. So 
well, that's kind of, you know, it wasn't a moment or, or, or anything like that. It was just sort of this drift uh, towards this. And you know what's really interesting, though, is I've been doing this for a long time. And, you know, pop culture representations of science and health, I think they've always been viewed, you know, as interesting, but not central, right? Holy cow, has that changed, you know, really over the last two, three, four, five years, it has become a central topic, you know, how science is misrepresented. You know, I would say we live in the era of, of misinformation and that's before the coronavirus, you know, now it's like a dominant theme. Tim talked about how, while the data shows people have always believed conspiracy theories, and while there has always been a subsect of people who are drawn to them, social media has amplified it. It's transformed the way we talk about science and how we build communities around these topics and how news is shared. I told him about how I once believed the internet would democratize information and therefore lead to better clarity and understanding. But clearly that is not the case. Yeah, it's, it's not the case. Uh, uh, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of um, you know, freedom of expression, obviously. So, you know, I love that aspect to it. I love... I love how people have are, are closer to scientific studies now. There isn't this this wall between them and the research. You know that's fantastic, but the problem is there's just so much noise now, and um, of course, it's uh, social media has also become a tool of polarization. You know, it hasn't it hasn't really brought us together. On the contrary, in many respects, uh, it's pushed us apart because right? it's and there's research to back this up, right? You know, it, it really. Social media is largely a polarization machine. Yes, there's good news stories about you know building communities and um, giving people support and making them feel like they're part of a community when perhaps they haven't in the past. But you know studies have tell, shown us that that it really is largely a polarization machine. The fight against COVID nineteen misinformation is, in many ways, just as important as the work on treatment and vaccines. After all, what is the point of a vaccine if people refuse to take it? How can there be social distancing if people think the virus is a deep state hoax? And more importantly, how can the average person identify trustworthy sources when so much of what we come across is misleading? Tim gave some details on how a pandemic in the era of social media has made for a misinformation perfect storm. This is the first pandemic in the era of of social media. Uh, it's a pandemic that happened at the time where we were already living in the era of misinformation and fake news. So many of us, you know, the World Health Organization, including me, have, you know, termed this the infodemic because that's part of the problem. And, and, and we, ha we should remember that this is also having a tangible impact. There have been deaths associated with misinformation poisonings and other kinds of physical harms associated with it. There's been property damage uh, associated with it. There's been increases in stigma and, dis and discrimination because uh, of it. It's had an adverse impact on, on health and science policy. I mean, the hydroxychloroquine story itself, I mean, think of the amount of time and energy that has been wasted on that topic. It's incredible, right? It's incredible, all because of, of a hype story from, from, uh, France and an endorsement by the president of the United States, right? That's, that's really what drove that. And there's evidence to back, back that up. And, and also the other form of harm and one that I, I think is underplayed is just the degree to which this helps to add to the chaotic information environment. There's an interesting study that came out, I think last week that highlighted the, 
the degree to which just having all this information out there that people can't sort sort through it, it leads to both it causes people to both believe misinformation more and and be uncertain of what kind of information to follow no surprise but it's good to have that uh, data because it really highlights how just being subjected to this chaotic information environment can have a real adverse impact. The most pervasive health misinformation is related to vaccines. The World Health Organization labeled vaccination hesitancy as one of the top 10 health threats of 2019, two spots behind Ebola. It seems crazy to me because vaccines are like medical magic that protect us from getting sick. Smallpox was one of the most feared diseases until it was eradicated by vaccination. How did we get to the point where people decided vaccinations are bad? It's stunning. It's stunning. And I get frustrated by it every single day, I think. Um, it is incredible. As you know, this is an area where, where we do work at the Institute on, on vaccination hesitancy. Uh, and and let's, let's just start with the, you know, the, the reality you know, vaccines are probably the single greatest achievement of biomedicine. The single greatest achievement of biomedicine, are, you know, vac saves millions of lives every single year. And despite that, we have this misinformation circulating around it. And, and the misinformation is having a real impact. You know, it's having, it's creating vaccination hesitancy. Look, we're never going to change the minds of the hardcore anti-vaxxers, those hardcore conspiracy theorists. I think that's a really important science communication reality that we just have to suck up, right? We're not going to change their minds. Um, but what we can do, hopefully, is stop them from infecting other people and creating more hesitancy. And uh, so that's what I think people are tr that try to do. And, and, and a, lot of this, a lot of this has been the result of social media. It's been the result of um, the conspiracy theorists, you know, they really have had an impact on, on people's perceptions of vaccines. You know, va vaccination hesitancy has been around since there's been vaccines, but it really has intensified in a harmful way uh, over the last, you know, last couple of years. Right now, a vaccine is seen as our golden ticket out of this pandemic. Experts say a strong vaccine that provides good levels of immunity is the thing that could get us back to some semblance of normal. With this in mind, I asked him if vaccination resistance is still as palpable as ever. Yes, it is. And, and I'm surprised with the, the degree to which it is. So there have been a number of surveys and a number of studies on this. And, you know, they, they've come to slightly different conclusions. But the picture is generally this. You know, there was a study from the United States that found that only 50% of Americans said they would get it. And I think it was over a quarter said they will not, I think it was 27%, will not get the vaccine, right? So if you layer on top of that, um, you know, hesitancy that we know is going to be there and just practical, so, you know, you're looking at a good hunk of the population that's not going to get it. The numbers in Canada, a little better, but not great. Already about, uh, I think I'm going to say 27% also is 10% said they will not get it for sure. And another, I think is another 17%, they probably won't get it, right? So again, layer on top of that, you know, practical things. That's incredible to me. It's incredible to me. And part of it is the traditional vaccination hesitant, people believing it, the conspiracy theories uh, around this uh, you are, is what's leading to these depressing numbers. It seems like the challenge right now is to somehow convince the vaccination hesitant part of the population to embrace a coronavirus vaccine. I asked him if he thinks we'll be able to persuade the people who are 
on the fence about vaccines? Uh, I hope so. You know, first of all, we gotta, we've got to make sure that we do create the, the science around, around the vaccines done right. You know, because I'll tell you, if we blow this, you know, if we do some, you know, don't do the clinical trials, right? If we don't do the safety analysis, right? If we blow this and rush it. I, I think it's going to have, not only is it going to hurt the confidence in this vaccine, but it'll hurt the confidence in all vaccines, right? So we got to do it that way. And secondly, we've got to be super transparent about what the evidence is saying uh, about the safety data, about the empirical evidence on effectiveness. Uh, but we have to get on the communication game right now. You know, we've got to start building trust right now and, and trying to fight the misinformation surrounding vaccines. That has to happen now in preparation for the delivery of the vaccines, which we, we all hope is going to be relatively soon. On the flip side, could a successful vaccine instill confidence in vaccinations overall? I, I think so. that's, my, that's, you know, obviously my hope, right? Um, although. Um, I'm skeptical we'll get there. You know, I think what's going to, I hope it just doesn't get worse. And um, a good example is the flu vaccine, right? Every year, every year, it's a new battle, you know, to explain to people, yes, I know it's not effective and you're not getting the vaccine, you know, totally effective. You know, it's like sometimes if, you know, the, the effectiveness varies from year to year and um, trying to explain to people, you're not getting the vaccine for yourself. You're doing it for others. It's still the best uh, tool that we have to fight the vaccine. All those messages we have to say that again every every single year, right? And I suspect that's what we're going to have here. Having said that, if we end up with a really effective vaccine that you know allows the economy to open up, you know, gives people the confidence they need to you know go to football games and to hockey games, I'm hopeful if we do the communication right, it can help all vaccines. A frustrating aspect of misinformation is when it sows distrust in science altogether. You might remember back in May when Dr. Teresa Tam, Canada's chief public health officer, shifted her stance on mask wearing and made the official recommendation that Canadians wear non-medical face masks when maintaining a two-meter distance isn't possible. She said the change came in response to emerging information from science and medical communities, but some critics leapt at the opportunity to discredit her altogether, as if a change in stance invalidated all she had said before. We see this kind of argument against science often, particularly with climate change. It goes that if the science isn't perfect right away, then it has never been accurate. This is a problem. This is a big problem. Uh, and uh, it's a complex one because first there's a science literacy aspect to it. This idea that's, that science is somehow a list of facts, right? And if one of those facts is wrong, science is wrong. And the person who said it is wrong and can't be trusted. And in fact, it's the exact opposite. You know, science is not a list of facts. It's, it's not an institution. It's not a person. It's not an industry. It's a process. And that's something that I, I really hope that we can use this moment in history to educate the public about, right? Uh, I, I like to say it's a badge of honor for a science-informed institution to change their mind, because that means they're changing their mind based on the science. Um, so I think this is a, pro a problematic uh, notion that some in the public have. Um, and, and the other thing that, that science is uh, you know, dogmatic, you know, I think the mask story is a really good example. 
because as you probably know, the evidence is still pretty equivocal. It's pretty, it's still unclear. It's still evolving. I'm pro-mask. You know, I think it, it, it is emerging as something that is uh, one strategy that can be used. Uh, but the evidence isn't great. You know, it is. I wish I could say it's like vaccines where you can come out and you don't have to pull your punches at all because there's this mountain of evidence about how valuable they are and, and, how, and the, there's evidence on the, on the safety. With masks and so many things that we're talking about around the coronavirus, the, the evidence is still emerging. And so what we need to do is we need to trust the public health authorities and those entities that are trying to aggregate the science in a responsible manner uh, and, and to champion whatever conclusions they come up with, especially if they come up with those conclusions in a, in a transparent way. If I, if I could go on just a little bit, I think, I think there have been some mistakes that have been made. You know, I think it's dangerous to portray science uh, our conclusion as if it's definitive. I think the best thing you do for the public is trust them a little bit to understand that you, it's, the science is uncertain. And based on the science and based on our local conditions, this is the recommendation that we're going to make now. It might change in the future, but right now I think this is what we need to do as a community. And when a public health authority does that, and I think Alberta has been pretty good, pretty darn good, I think it's, it's, we should champion those conclusions. If scientists face all these misinformation hurdles, how do they carve out their voice? We asked him about how we might be able to speak truth in the age of misinformation. Well, I think we, we need to be out there. You know, the research community needs to be out. We need shows like this. <laughs> you know, we, need, we need to be out there. Um, and, you know, I just wrote a piece actually uh, on this exact topic. You know, I called it Does Debunking Work? Uh, and maybe that's not even the best phrase. It should be, it does, does science communication work? Does communication work? And I think it does. And, and so often you hear from the scientific community, oh, A, it's not worth it. B, when you do it, it backfires. I'm sure you've heard, heard that before, that uh, you know, science communication or debunking can backfire. Uh, and that we're never going to be able to win this battle. Be, well, I think all of that is wrong-ish. <laughs> you know, it's wrong-ish. Uh, there's good evidence that debunking can work, that being part of the conversation can have an impact, especially if you do it well, and we can come back to what doing well means. And the other thing is the backfire effect, which you hear a lot. You know, in fact, right now, Facebook uses the backfire effect as an excuse as to why they don't counter misinformation on their platform. And it's, it's this belief that if you use facts to correct someone, you're just going to cause them to become more entrenched in their views or you're going to just amplify their views, right? So in other words, debunking does more harm than good. Well, despite how many people believe that, there's not good empirical evidence to back it up. There are a couple of famous studies in 2010 around then. But really since then, most evidence has found that the backfire effect, uh, if it does exist, it's relatively rare and happens in certain circumstances. And more importantly, that you know, providing people with the facts can change people's minds. We seem to be at something of a crossroads in terms of where social media is heading. Twitter has decided that it must crack down on misinformation in at least small ways by labeling tweets as misleading. You may have heard about how they, for the first time, put a disclaimer on two of Trump's tweets near the end of May. I asked him if he thought we could see major reform in how social media companies operate. This is a topic I'd like to dig into more personally in my academic life. I, I, 
I don't know. And, and part of it, I think it's, it's because, you know, first of all, I, I'm a big believer in freedom of expression. I really am, you know, and, and, and we have to remember what we're asking these private actors to do. We're asking private actors to decide what we get to see. Um, and look, this is coming from a person that's been fighting misinformation for decades, right? So there is a balance there. Of course, they've always done that. They've always decided what we're going to see in one way or you know through their algorithms and and through other means. So that's they've always done that. Um, um, in addition to that, um, I think we need to make sure whatever steps are taken are evidence based. You know, there's been really interesting work done around um, the effectiveness of those redirects and warnings and suggesting that they have you know those are those flags that say you know whether this is trustworthy kind of what happened to to trump's tweet and there's mixed evidence about how effective they are it looks like they're modestly effective but I, whatever whatever we do with with social media um to remedy remedy the problem i hope it's evidence-based the good news is they're recognizing their role finally you know facebook less so than maybe the other platforms but I think they're finally recognizing the profound role they play in this problem and they're willing to do something. So I, I think ideally we'd need some kind of independent oversight that they're, they are not keen on accepting, but that would be the best case scenario, right? Some kind of independent oversight uh, of whatever mechanism uh, they implement. Um, uh, but uh, it, it's a real challenge. It's a very complicated one. It's just not as simple as telling them to start banning misinformation because you know, how do you define misinformation? Do you really want to give them that power? Uh, does that banning actually work? Uh, there are all of these, all these questions that need to be answered. It feels like misinformation is more potent and more popular than ever before, and that's a scary thing. But I'm heartened by the fact that there are people like Tim Caulfield fighting for evidence-based policy, help, and science. The last thing we asked him was if there's anything we can actually learn from the people who spread misinformation. Could we use the tactics that make fake news stories so popular to debunk them? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I absolutely think we could do a better job. You know, we celebrity culture is not going away. Social media is not going away. These influencers aren't going away. We've got to learn from the tools that they use to spread misinformation, to spread the good stuff. So what can we do? Um, we can, I think, um, we got to use the facts and use them well. Uh, tell stories that are compelling. You know, we can do that too. Like tell a compelling story, use a narrative to get across the science because we know narratives are more, are, are more um, memorable. Um, and use content that is shareable on social media. You know, they're doing it. <laughs> we should be doing it too. You know, think about Instagram, think about Twitter, think about Facebook and how your message is going to be, is going to be shared. Um, and, and the other thing I think we need to do is, is not worry about the conspiracy theorists so much. Whatever message that we make, you know, you can use a, a wingnut story about 5G uh, as an excuse to talk about science and what the actual uh, evidence says, but our, the general public should always be our audience. And, and that's something else I think we should, we should focus on. You know, I, I fall down that trap too. <laughs> Sometimes you get angry at at someone who's spreading some nasty conspiracy theory, that's a waste of psychic energy. You know, make sure that the general public is always, always your audience. The Line is a University of Alberta Alumni Association podcast. This episode was hosted by me, Matt Ray, and produced by me and Chloe Chalmers. Things happen fast in the pandemic, 
and we're trying to keep track by noting how these episodes function as snapshots in time. We recorded our interview with Tim on Thursday, June 11th. At the time, there had been 7,316 confirmed COVID-19 cases in Alberta. As I record this message, on Tuesday, June 23rd, that number is now at 7,781.